This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by food we miss at the mall. Franklin, what was the, the food court restaurant that you miss the most, either in a mall or an airport? Before I answer that question, Joe, I mean, what about those good old days of Saturday afternoon? You're just lollygagging around the mall. You got some gifts to get, but you're just you're going at kind of a slow pace. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'll get a piece of pizza. Oh, maybe I'll get a pretzel. I think it's the comforting thought of just being in a mall setting. I hate malls, by the way. I don't I don't like to be piled up like that. But right now, it sounds great. Like the nostalgia is, is deep. And I got to be honest. The borrowed pizza, like, I think I would knock that out about anywhere if I really was hungry. If I just wanted to munch, it's hard to beat a good pretzel from uh, Annie Ann's. But I think that's I think that's where I would go. What about yourself? What I about tell yourself? you, I'm a veteran of the spiral pizza thing. You know, just the, just the number of airports we're in all the time. But I tell you, I have a sweet spot, no pun intended, in my heart for Cinnabon. Man, there's nothing early flight. You know, you're at a dinner event, you know, the night before. You maybe didn't sleep well, and you just want some coffee. You want some comfort food, and you see that Cinnabon. Oh, oh, man. It's like it's like calling you home. I miss an airport Cinnabon. It's actually making my mouth kind of water right now. You can get those at the grocery store sometimes. Right? You can buy them in bulk. Can you get a Cinnabon at the grocery store? Pretty dangerous. It is dangerous. It is dangerous. All right, well, I'm, I'm thinking about Cinnabons right now. You're thinking about mall nostalgia so on that note let's do the show can I help you? we need to talk about your flair I think I'm gonna have to go supersize we need a political revolution and we will make America great again from the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, Congress is attempting to shore up the Paycheck Protection Program by infusing an additional $250 billion into the program. But no good deed goes unpunished in Washington, and partisan politics have bogged down the effort. We'll discuss the legislative prospects for more assistance and what changes may happen with the program. And while we are focused on the now, we can't lose sight of what's coming down the road. The future of employee benefits almost assuredly involves some type of portability, and we'll discuss whether the business community will lead that conversation or get run over by it. And it's the end of an era. The final presidential campaign of Bernie Sanders has come to an end. We'll talk about his impact on the current debates around our industry, his potential future impact, and who will be the new standard bearer for his agenda. We'll have those stories and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line partner, Franklin Coley. And another big week in Washington, another big week with our favorite program, the Paycheck Protection Program. The, the, the administration is trying to infuse another $250 billion into what was already a $350 billion program, but hit some snags uh, late in the week. Our friend... Uh, uh, Mitch McConnell tried to uh, jam it through the Senate pretty quick. Democrats balked. They couldn't come to resolution. And now we're in limbo. What in the world, Frank and Coley, is going on up there? Well, we may be in limbo in terms of the federal bill. But um, very quickly, Federal Reserve said, we got this. And it was timed pretty well in terms of basically when the news was coming out that the federal, you know, the wheels were falling off of the, the federal uh, congressional effort. The Federal Reserve came in and said, we're going to put more money into it. And that immediately kind of stabilized markets and gave everyone the confidence that essentially the federal government was going to 
was going to do what needed to be done. The Treasury Secretary has also basically time and time again said, we're going to make this program work and we're going to make sure it's funded. So I think that confidence translated in the markets react and it, and hopefully that kind of posturing by the administration will continue to uh, keep up confidence and keep us from spiraling out of control completely. But yeah, the, the program this week, I think on Tuesday, 50 billion was gone. And then by Wednesday or Thursday, it was 70 billion was gone. I think I, I last read that 85 billion was gone from the program. So this program, as we all know, has been in incredibly high demand. A lot of people have been taking advantage of this program, and the monies are going quick. And so it's important that the uh, the feds have come back in and said we're we're gonna we're gonna continue this program and make sure that you know this recession doesn't slip into a depression. So I expect at some point that the fourth relief bill that we've been talking about will probably sort itself out like these previous bills have, and uh, there'll be a lot of stuff packed into that. Franklin, um, I thought it was really smart of the Fed, uh, to, to build on your point, to do what they did and basically bypass the process by putting by putting money directly in the hands of the lenders and, and making them liquid so they didn't have to wait on monies from the SBA or, you know, they got the, the, the one piece of the puzzle kind of liquid. And I thought it was, uh, it was really smart. And to your point, it was very nimble. I know that uh, president is constantly seems to be at war with the head of the Federal Reserve, but I suspect he is fairly happy with uh, what Powell did this, this week in that front. Uh, Franklin, you know, I know you're talking about COVID-4, but obviously there's this uh, this other bill kind of that's wedged in the middle here in infusing capital into the program. What happened in Washington uh, this week? Why did it fail to pass the Senate? You know, this potentially could get rolled into COVID-4. It could be a clean bill. And I think that's part of the discussion is, you know, do we want a clean bill that just puts money into the program, providing additional funding for the program? Or do we want to load in all our other priorities? And that, that's where a lot of the debate rests. So, you know, Democrats in particular won't um, additional monies for the states and municipalities whose budgets have gotten whacked. They want additional monies for health care, you know, hospitals and frontline workers. And as we've seen in uh, in some of these other conversations, when, you know, the fire is not immediate, and we do have a little bit of time here, right, because the funding for the – we probably have a false sense of how much time we have, but the funding for – the initial round of funding is not gone applications are still going in. So I think there's probably a sense from policymakers they have a little bit of breathing room here. And any time they have that sense, you're going to see their priorities getting infused into the process and their political philosophies getting kind of infused into the process. And so I suspect, you know, we will see kind of more stipulations working their way into this into these bills, whether it's a standalone bill for more funding or a larger fourth relief package. And, you know, that probably won't fall away unless or when the situation gets dire and they basically have to pass something immediately. And I think that's when everyone will coalesce and get something out of the process. But that's where the debate falls right now in Congress. And that's where things have fallen apart is do we do a clean bill? Do we do additional funding? What is the next big relief bill look like? Are they one and the same? Are they different? 
and uh, that debate is going to continue. I, and I think we're, we're starting to kind of get, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, mission creep here. I, I think there are a couple of sore subjects among certainly restaurant owners, small business people. Um, and I'm, I'm probably going to, at the risk of, of making our, many in this audience uh, upset at me, but people have to remember that this was not intended to be a small business relief act. This was intended to have monies flow directly to individuals and workers. And the employer, with regard to the small business loans, was merely a conduit, a pass-through. And so, again, going back to those reimbursement rates and 100% loan forgiveness if it went to payroll and, you know, a diminishing scale of, of loan forgiveness if it went for other things, you know, they want 100, <clears throat> they're now advocating for 100% of loan forgiveness on rent and all these non kind of payroll related things. And I think they're losing sight of the fact that it was not supposed to be a small business relief act. It was supposed to be, employers supposed to be merely a conduit to keep people on the payroll. And so that has entered into the conversation you saw our Senator uh, Rick Scott advocating that enough, too few smaller, the, the, the big guys were elbowing out the small guys um, and the, the rules got to be rewritten so that's not, in his opinion, favoring the big guys. So there's there's a criterion issue that I think the funding piece for the, for the, the new infusion of capital is getting clogged up by this changing the criteria which probably would be better suited to your point in a COVID-4. Let's just get this money out as is and let's fix it retroactively in COVID-4, which has been the, the recipe already. They fixed problems in COVID-2 retroactively in COVID-3 and blah, blah, blah. So no crisis is safe from politics and we see that happening. And I think, Frank, when I read uh, this morning that based on Senate rules, the, the next time they can take a run at getting this thing through is, is Monday, correct? Uh, that sounds right, but I, I don't know. I don't know for certain in that. I did. I did want to stress one thing that you hit on though, that that there will be technical corrections to three as there was to two, and and I'm sure one actually. But you're right to reiterate the legislative intent here. It was to put put dollars in the hands of workers and either do that through the unemployment insurance system or through maintaining that employer-employee relationship, which they really wanted to do, but they the, the goal was to put money workers. And I will say, though, that there are some very notable franchise systems that, for whatever reason, their, their kind of coding did not have them qualify. They were clearly, clearly intended to be lumped in. So there, there's some systems that, you know, didn't meet kind of that hospitality definition in, that was in the legislation, but clearly were the types of employers that legislators were thinking of. And so that's a minority, but if you're in that minority, it's a really big deal. So I, I do think that that will probably be, I hope that will be part of the cleanup effort. If you are one of those, those few that are, that are listening and you're in that small minority of uh, franchise restaurant chains or whatever, that hopefully you will get captured in this, in this next cleanup and relief. And I expect that will probably come. And whether it's a clean bill, funding bill, or a, a larger package, I expect that will probably be included. Franklin, two other things, two other points we want to hit on in terms of kind of what happened this week uh, with regard to you know, the, the public policy world and the corona world uh, colliding. There's been a lot bigger emphasis this week, uh, a much more uh, elevated conversation, if you will, around worker safety 
and worker safety guidelines and states and localities, especially, and maybe a growing list of them putting out edicts or executive orders to follow CDC guidelines in their states. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we've talked about this in the past couple of podcasts, particularly around kind of labor organizing efforts and strikes that were focused in worker safety. We talked about how the retailers, Amazon, uh, Whole Foods, Walmart, were going to set the bar higher by requiring uh, or providing their workers uh, face masks, gloves, in some cases, hand sanitizer. They're starting temperature checks. And so we had said last week or the week before that the bar was getting ready to rise for all operators in the space and for restaurants. And it is. It's The bar is being risen by municipalities and by states. So we've had a bunch. New Jersey passed an executive order. A bunch of California municipalities, uh, Los Angeles and San Diego and Santa Barbara and some others. And then we've got some activity in Texas, I think Laredo and Rhode Island has been looking at doing stuff. They're all mandating face protection and in some cases gloves for frontline workers. And this follows CDC guidelines um, that were released this week. And also, so there's a couple things for operators to look for here. You have other states and localities that are mandating that anytime you go into public, you must have face coverings. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, mask. That could be like a cloth, you know, bandana or baklava or whatever. But you, it's mandating some sort of face covering. So that may actually cover your workers that when they're coming and working in the store, they need to have a face covering on too. So you need to look at that and pay attention to that. Uh, the other piece, and a lot of folks, particularly in these, these California municipalities like Los, Los Angeles, are making the case that, look, we can't get a hold of masks. Like they're, you know, the market is, you know, if you're an independent operator and you have, you know, two restaurants, getting a hold of face masks for all your workers is not an easy task in this in this moment. And so what the what, what most of the legislation is allowing for is, you know, reimbursement if employees want to essentially make their own cloth mask. So bottom line is the marketplace on this has been changing for some weeks. And so the expectations of workers and consumers and those expectations are going to be sharpened by labor advocates that are focused on it are changing. At the same time, CDC guidelines are changing, and we have states and localities that are picking up on those CDC guidelines and making special mandates on employers. So everybody needs to be aware of this shifting landscape in, in terms of worker protection. And I would say as much as you possibly can, get ahead of the curve on this. It totally makes sense to be looking at how you're going to provide and or require face coverings and gloves in your in your restaurants and retail operations if you can. And or I would begin looking at temperature checks or screenings of employees before they come on to shift, on to work. At this point, some McDonald's notably is not doing temperature checks like the retailers but they're screening their employees, having conversations. Do they feel ill? Have they been sick? Have they been exposed? As much to screen them as to, uh, I think, really kind of check in and ensure that they're thinking through the, the right things and pr- putting the right priorities front of mind. So a lot going on in this space, Joe. There's liability in terms of complying with these mandates, and there's definitely reputational liability that brands are going to have to navigate as well. Yeah, and I, I, you know, and I think the summation is that if brands aren't unilaterally on their own doing these things, 
uh, a number of, of forward-leaning states are going to make them over the next week or two if this curve is not flattened. If we continue to have uh, the numbers that we're having for the next six, eight, 10 days, I would, if I'm a multi-unit, multi-state operating brand, I can expect that I'm going to be mandated to do a lot of this stuff in a lot of places. So to your point, it needs to be on the radar and begin, begin the planning for that now. The other thing, Franklin, uh, pivoting quickly for the last part of this section, other developments this week, we've seen an escalating battle, and now it's bleeding into Congress, that restaurateurs and small business people are fighting with their insurance companies who, to no surprise, uh, you know my love uh, of the insurance industry, to no surprise are finding any way to wriggle out of their commitments uh, and, and try to default on those policies. And many in the restaurant industry are seeking regulatory relief. What is your take on that? Your love for the insurance industry is only matched by your love for the financial industry. This started in the beginning. You know, the, the business interruption coverage and a lot of insurers were saying that this, you know, act of God is not counted into the business interruption coverage that a lot of uh, a lot of employers had to try to cover them in, in the event of something quite frankly crazy like this happening. So that is going to be litigated. That is, you know, policymakers are going to weigh in. I have to say that the the insurance industry obviously has a lot of political clout. We know this. But there's a lot of small businesses out there. I, I think if I'm a politician, Republican or Democrat, I'm kind of want to be on the side of the small business owners all across the nation, you know, hundreds in, in every district that, you know, are facing off against the insurance industry on, on this issue. I, I don't know where this is going to land. I don't know how much wiggle room there is here, but it, it is an interesting conversation and uh, one that we will continue to watch play out. Obviously, the stakes are very high for companies that have these business interruption policies that they think covered this, right? And insurance companies are, are telling them that it doesn't. So, uh, yeah, it, it is a merging issue. And, well, it's not an emerging issue. It's, one, it's a conversation that's been going on for a while, but it's just really starting to get on the, the radars of policymakers. So we'll see exactly what their response will be in the coming weeks. Yeah, and you know, the insurance companies, I'm sure, will do their best to keep away and and, and avoid uh, making good on the the contracts they have with with their uh, beneficiaries. Uh, I am still just apoplectic that the Bank of America uh, is turning its back on America with, with with regard to these loans and small business people. It's just it's outrageous. It's criminal. It keeps me up at night. But on that happy note, um, again, busy week. Next week will be an even busier week. It is certainly a time to be in touch with your local uh, elected representatives, as we've been saying all along. Let them know what's working with these programs. Let them know what's not working with these programs. Give them your advice and counsel about where they need to go because, again, they are all critically invested in the success of this stuff. Um, and so they are, they are literally, they're literally all ears on this. So big week in Congress this week. Well, Franklin, we did, a, I think, a pretty good job of, of, of talking about the big picture things that are happening this week uh, in Washington, potentially next week. But no matter what the, what the crisis is immediately in, in front of you now, you've always got to be thinking down the road about when, when and how we get through this, this crisis and how we are positioned uh, to move forward, whether it's from a business model perspective, reputational perspective, uh, legislative and policy perspective. And one of those issues 
that you know you and I have been kicking around for years and years and years that is primed for a different kind of debate right now is an issue of portable benefits. And you know we've we've said on last week's pod and any a number of other forums, you know things will look different. Uh, the world of employee benefits, uh, the world of the, our relationship to independent contractors, all that stuff has been changed dramatically especially in this COVID-3 legislation. And I keep saying, I'm a broken record, not all those genies, if any, are going to go back in the bottle. And so here we are in this situation where it seems like, you know, there, there, there are a couple scenarios here that this increased level of benefit is going to stay and businesses are going to pick up the tab, A. B, these increased levels of benefit are going to stay government's going to provide them and then businesses will pick up the tab through taxes or C, there's an opportunity here to think about this in a very different way and have employers kind of extricate themselves from this, I don't want to say burden, that's the wrong word, but this responsibility in the leave space. And portable benefits, it seems like, is a perfect panacea uh, an approach for businesses to to kind of a get out of this conversation, but potentially potentially help bolster their bottom lines. You and I have talked at length about this. What is your take on this whole the, the moving sidewalk here with regard to this issue and what the new world order post Corona? W- w- what impact will that have on this issue? That's a lot. It's a big it's a big lead up there, Joe. You know, you see these conversations kind of bubble up in policy circles and academia and, and start to gain attention and notoriety and you, you can see kind of the snowball starting to roll downhill. We've seen that happening for some time in this conversation. I do think this crisis has kind of sped up that process tremendously. You know, these arguments that we can't have government intervention in, you know, the restaurant or hospitality industry has a little less resonance these days. You know, now we did get shut down. And so I think it's appropriate to go ask for assistance when when you're being shut down. But still, we are now openly making essentially a partner in our operations, the the federal and or state or local governments. And so that it changes things a little bit. We do need the, the conversation around paid leave is going to be wildly different after this. And all these things is just, just a shifting playing field. You know, so to skip ahead, one of the conversations that you and I have had kind of offline is if you're an institutional actor, right? If you're, if you're a big restaurant brand and you're going to offer these benefits, probably some form of these benefits anyway, and you also, you know, half your locations are in states and localities where you already have some sort of mandate, why would you not want a federal standard, number one? Number two, a federal standard actually creates, you know, kind of a barrier to market entry. Now, there will probably be some exemptions of some federal paid leave mandate, right, under 10 employees or maybe under 50 employees, which is your, you know, your traditional definition of small business. But above that, you know, if you had some national paid leave mandate, that would probably benefit big institutional actors because it would create a, a barrier to entry, a, a very significant kind of cost to entry into the market. And so, and for entry-level employers, for restaurants, that, that means a lot. If you're a professional service requiring paid leave, 
you know, your profit per employee, which is a metric we've always talked about, is much higher. And so you can absorb that mandate a lot easier than a, a, a restaurant or hospitality employer. I just feel like if you're an institutional actor in this space in the new world order, the timing may be right. And we've had a number of restaurant companies that have supported a federal pay leave mandate if it included a, a national preemption. The timing may be right to pursue something like that. And once you do that, you basically have a portable benefits regime that can be tweaked and, and things added or subtracted and customized in different ways and potentially in different states. So it seems like we're on a glide path there. You know, now that, that could that mean two years out or 15 years out. You know, we've been in a, a glide path. It, it's felt like in healthcare for decades and decades and decades to have more government involvement in the, the healthcare market. And then we've gone through these fits and starts and getting there. And I think most people agree that we're ultimately going to end there. So just because we're in the glide path of portable benefits doesn't mean it's going to kind of happen in two years. It, I just I feel like it will happen at some point, and paid leave will be the mechanism. To your final point, businesses should be a part of that conversation. You know, when the politics favor us, we should be setting up that regime in the way that works for us, so that we some regime is not set up that doesn't work for us when the politics do not favor us. Franklin, I I would go even further. I, it's not that we should be part of that conversation. We should be starting and driving that conversation. We know the end game. We know the end game is going to be either new mandates on us, new mandates by the government that we pay for through taxes, we either pay for directly pay for taxes, or we can carve out and create that future. And not only protect our business models and our bottom lines, we can also protect employees. There's a way to do it. And you know, one of the lemonades that can come from this you know, massive truckload of lemons that is the COVID-19 is everything's going to be different. There are going to be a lot of clean slates and there are going to be a lot of political clean slates. There's going to be opportunities to, to look and think about things in a very different manner than we have. And, you know, this whole portable benefits conversation in the old think is looked at as a threat and a labor community agenda priority. That's old think. I, I think in the new world order, there's an opportunity to look at this as a as a win-win, as a cost savings, ultimately, if you accept the fact that there will be significant new leave regimes, cost savings, and better protection for your workers and more flexibility for the employer. And the idea that we would not get out and not only participate, but drive and shape that conversation is crazy to me. I think it's a business imperative because I don't know if this crisis has done anything, it's shown the, the fragility of the entry-level employment model and the weight of increased benefit burden on that model in a post-COVID world uh, is is going to be too much for for many models out there. So I, I think it's actually a, a business imperative that the entry level community, most importantly, the restaurant community, get out and and shape this conversation. Well, this week something changed in the world of politics. A major player who has been driving the agenda. Uh, for at least the Democratic Party and a good bit of the country, has stepped back and ended his uh, candidacy for the Democratic nomination. Obviously, I'm talking about Senator Bernie Sanders. Franklin, it seems like Bernie Sanders has been at the center of our political arguments for longer than I can remember, a decade at least, obviously. And, you know, part of his, I don't know, his the energy and the attention was 
that even though it was uh, the odds were against it, there was a possibility where he could become president one day. Now there's no longer that possibility. First of all, what does that do to his role currently in either Democratic Party politics or the national conversation? And then what does that say about his legacy going forward? I think if he had actually become president, his legacy may not have been as impactful in a weird way. In the same way that kind of Barry Goldwater was the heart and soul of the conservative movement for, for so long having having failed. Bernie Sanders, I don't think, would do well as president because, you know, he is he's a Ron Paul type. You know, you, Ron Paul would not do well as president. But being on the outside, on the, on the edge, pointing out the failures and the flaws and leading a revolution – that's a different type of leader, and I think Bernie Sanders is well suited to that. That revolution he's leading is directly targeted at us. <laughs> so that, I think, is his, his legacy. I mean, he has, you know, three or four decades of experience speaking to this exact same topics. He has been out there in the wilderness alone for, for most of his career and all of a sudden has come to the, the center of the political conversation and in so doing has drug the Democratic Party to the left of the political conversation, squarely putting its crosshairs on uh, entry-level employers. I mean, the a number of different businesses, obviously, I would say kind of the big banks and, and some of the institutional financial actors are a bigger target for the Sandernista movement, but certainly we're, we're lumped in with all that. I think it's going to change a, a whole generation of uh, political activists that, you know, going from Occupy Wall Street to the end of Bernie Sanders' second, you know, big presidential campaign, I think there's a whole generation of politicos that that earn their chops and, and learn the issues, and Bernie was embedded in their heart, that are going to be involved in politics and going to get elected to office and are going to be steering the ships uh, at the federal level and at the state level for the next 50 years. And I, and I think that will be his lasting impact. I would I would say this last thing. Bernie Sanders is a good soldier, man. You know, it, both this and last go around were bitter losses. The way that he is, is essentially losing this time, it's just not fair. I mean, life isn't fair, right? But this is not fair. It, COVID-19, it's freezing the field. And so the choice that he's left with is – do I stretch out this primary contest basically into the general election and completely jeopardize Democrats' chance to coalesce and, and beat Trump? Or do I kind of follow my sword and be a team player here and allow Biden to start running a general election campaign? And, and that's essentially, you know, he came out and despite treatment by the DNC and, you know, a bitter contest with Hillary Clinton, endorsed Hillary Clinton and campaigned for Hillary Clinton. And he's a good kind of soldier at the end of the day. He's not even a Democrat. And he's he's willing to fall in and support the Democrat nominee for president. So I think that he is an important part of a much larger kind of movement. And he is awakening a portion of the left of center base that needs to fold in a more pragmatic approach to actually win things on a day-to-day basis. So I think that will be uh, his kind of lasting legacy. The embers of the burn will continue to see Chewy Garcia's run for Chicago mayor. And we'll continue to see these these little Bernie Sanders popping up all over the country and driving forward his, his policy initiatives for years and years to come. So, Frank, let me ask you a little more difficult question. You know, Bernie Sanders 
is you love him or hate him, agree with him, disagree with him. You know, he has a, a an informed, thoughtful worldview. I don't think adds up. You know, looks good on paper. You know, but doesn't add up in real life. But it's it's a lot less political. It, it's it's not about getting votes. It's about getting an idea, a concept, and a worldview across. With him gone, or just in a much more diminished role, you know, you can see that mantle falling to Elizabeth Warren, who also kind of approaches these things from a a policy wonk type of position. You could potentially see AOC grabbing the mantle, but she does not approach it from an academic policy space. She's much more kind of engaged on the street, if you will, with the citizen, with workers. She's she's in that space. Who, Who do you see as the rightful heir? If there is one person, who's the rightful heir to the Bernie Sanders legacy? That's a good question. I I think you mentioned the heir appearance are the squad in the house, right? AOC is clearly part of that that crew. They're the the recognized up and coming standard bearers at this moment. But I don't think we know. I, I think they're out there. I think there's a bunch of little Sander nieces out there all over the country. It could have been Andrew Gillum. It could have been Stacey Abrams. There, you know, if we think about, you know, for 40 years Sanders twirled away in near obscurity and just came into the national scene in the past 10 years. Elizabeth Warren before the recession was a uh, professor, right? And it was plucked by Harry Reid out of being a professor to come in and and help with the uh, keeping accountability over essentially the TARP funds and, and the banks. And now she's become a figure. So I, I think they're out there. They're in circulation. We just haven't recognized them yet. They haven't stepped into that, that role yet. But uh, I don't think there's any shortage of them. I, I think that, um, you know, time will tell who, who steps forward as, as kind of the standard bearer. You know, right now, I think it's probably those heir parents you mentioned, or at the state level, if you look around the country, there's a lot of folks in the wings. And, you know, if you look at like Tish James in New York or, you know, you look at California, there's, there's some folks on deck there. So I, I, I do think they're out there, and I do think they will emerge, and I do think they'll uh, they'll pick up the mantle. But Sanders ain't going away anytime soon. You know, we, uh, you know, he uh, he is out there every day, you know, still beating the drum. So we, we still have at least some, some time still with him kind of leading the fold. It certainly is a wing of the party that I just don't see diminishing or, or folding up uh, in the near term. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And as always, we start with wages. Franklin, a bit of minimum wage activity out in the People's Republic. The business community is pushing back on minimum wage out there. So there was a release valve, an off-ramp that was in the minimum wage increase there, essentially. During times of extraordinary economic crisis or high unemployment, the governor can choose to suspend the automatic escalation of the minimum wage increase. It's hard to imagine any other scenario that fits that definition better than the current crisis. And so the business community is calling upon the governor to, in fact, exercise that ability to suspend the increase in the minimum wage. I would say that the same is happening in Virginia. We reported on that a week or two ago, but that conversation is continuing. And I expect that uh, we will see it probably play out in other cities, 
counties and states around the country. Yeah, I just note that the uh, California Restaurant Association is playing a leadership role in that effort. And so we'll we'll see how that plays out. I think the the way the law is written is the finance the finance director uh, for the governor makes that determination at the middle of the year, July one, based on data to date. So um, we'll we'll see what happens then. Franklin, speaking of wages, we've talked about companies upping wages in response to the outbreak and uh, either to attract or retain employees or hazard pay. Another entry level employer, Charter Communication, made some news this week. Yeah, bumping up its entry-level wage to uh, an additional dollar fifty an hour, effective immediately for their technicians and, and call center folks, and they're committing to raising that wage, that entry-level wage, to twenty dollars an hour within the next couple of years. So that is a shifting uh, labor market right there. That's a that's a lot of money as an entry-level wage. That is a lot of money, and twenty bucks is a nice. Like fight for fifteen was a was a nice round number. Twenty bucks is a nice round number too. So again, to your point, the 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 field of play continues to change with regard to wages. Uh, Frank, a lot of activity this week in paid leave as we talked uh, ad nauseum on podcasts and webinars and documents that states will kind of get into their act and either add on to what the Fed did or fill in some gaps to what the Fed did. And, and right on cue, uh, we're seeing that play out. Uh, New York, top of the batting order. We talked about this, but there was uh, the governor made a, a last minute tweet to some paid leave legislation that was going through the legislature, essentially expanding paid leave requirements in the era of COVID-19. And it's part of a, a budget agreement that was just inked by the governor and essentially made those requirements permanent. And um, so employers will accrue one hour sick leave for every 30 works. Employees with 5 to 99 employees will provide at least 40 hours of paid leave annually. Employers with 100 or more will have to offer 56 hours annually. So the bottom line is basically that's a done deal now. 56, that's a, you know, it's starting to get to a high watermark. That's a, that's a big number. So uh, pretty interesting. And then conversely, Franklin, out in California, uh, we saw cities, you know, the, the, the federal law, had uh, exemptions for employers with more than 500 employees and some other exemptions. And a lot of cities jumped into the mix to try to fill those holes. Uh, it looks like uh, Los Angeles went a little too far and kind of backtracked this week a little bit. So that's, that's right. Los Angeles was the first to kind of try to close that loophole, if you will, in the federal legislation. A couple things happened since we reported in Los Angeles two weeks ago. One, the Labor Department released the rules of the the federal bill and essentially it had a bunch of exemptions in there and kind of outs and so it wasn't as ironclad i think as was thought going into the rulemaking process of the labor department in fact congressional democrats were outraged at that and then similarly we have los angeles kind of walking back their requirement and so they're, they're creating a lot of outs and exemptions in their rule as well but that that is not given pause to a whole host of other California cities that are charging right in and addressing that 500 and greater employees. And we said this was going to happen when we were talking about um, Los Angeles like two weeks ago, that, that other cities in California were likely to follow suit. And for companies with more than 500 employees that were exempted from the federal legislation, that they were likely to put requirements down. And we have seen that now happen. San Jose and San Francisco this week are the next two to kind of, you know, pile into the fray, essentially. And uh, San Jose specifically 
addresses that exemption and 500 or more, you know, it requires 80 hours of sick leave. And in San Francisco is an emergency paid sick leave law also covering those exempted 14 days of paid leave for those who tested positive for COVID-19. So basically that 80-hour requirement as well. So expect more and more California cities to kind of follow, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see this jumping over the East Coast as well. Yeah, under the guise of, you know, watch in, in these cities will be parroting each other. So you'll see, as always, see in California, New York first, and you'll see city after city kind of jump into this space. So people need to kind of pay attention. Speaking of, of states following each other, Governor of Michigan issued an executive order uh, this week that I think people should take note of, again, under the same guise of like-minded governors following suit and doing the same thing. What did, what did Governor Whitmer do? She said employers cannot discharge discipline, retaliate against employees for staying home, essentially saying that they have uh, been exposed to or infected by COVID-19. It's an anti-retaliation measure. I would also say that the governor of Michigan is getting a lot of national notoriety for the way that she is handling this, and she is being talked about as a potential VP pick for Biden. So all of a sudden, her profile, like Cuomo's, has uh, gotten a huge boost through this crisis. She may be a player on the, on the national stage. You can see her getting a convention speaking spot at some point. So she's someone to keep an eye out on in terms of elevating into the kind of the national Democrat playing field. I've read some of her, her quotes in the last few days and weeks. And, you know, you make a good analogy to Cuomo. You know, she's just been very kind of straightforward, matter of fact, talk to people like they're people, not using a bunch of flowery language, you know, She's like, look, folks, I never heard of this damn thing four weeks ago, five weeks ago, you know, and now I'm I'm trying to get a Ph.D. as fast as I can. And, and you know, we're doing some good things. We're going to make some mistakes. But our, my commitment is to as soon as we make a mistake, you know, fixly address it. You know, and she's and that's all that's what people want to hear. You know, they, they want to hear that there's there's a there's an adult in, in, in charge. And, and so she's getting high marks uh, for just being normal. It's kind of refreshing. So yeah, she's media always looking for a, a new story. She's kind of the, the hot commodity of the, of the week for the media. And so that, that was obviously a priority, Franklin, this retaliation protection, obviously a priority for the labor community. Uh, they have been active during this crisis, worker funds and all kinds of stuff. But we reported last week that uh, they had some worker workplace disruptions, walkout strikes, however you want to describe it. Uh, with a number of McDonald's locations in California. This week, they replicated it with a number of other brands. Yeah, they're continuing to ramp up and, and get active. They sense success, and they sense their message is resonating. And uh, frankly, everybody's, everybody's fearful, particularly those workers that are going into work and uh, are interacting with other, other people. So um, they are moving to take advantage of that. And so I expect we're going to continue to see uh, more of this. And that's why we talked about in the earlier section that brands should stay ahead of this curve in terms of worker safety. And, and the marketplace, in a lot of ways, is ahead of the CDC guidelines and the uh, laws and requirements that are being passed at the state and local level. And brands would be smart to, to stay ahead of that curve here so that it is, uh, one, most importantly, to protect their workers, but two, you know, to, to not open themselves up to uh, charges that they're not being mindful and, and not taking care of their workers. And Franklin, uh, we referenced the, the labor community. They're kind of chortling a little bit recently uh, regarding the level of unemployment benefits and making some political hay out of that. What are, what are they up to? 
Yeah, we talked about this before a bunch of times in, in the context of CARES Act, but the labor community really detailed it this week, and essentially they're saying it's unfortunate that we needed a pandemic to get a $15 an hour federal minimum wage, but the um, $600 a week of federal unemployment benefits on top of the state unemployment benefits basically in a lot of states adds up to over $15 an hour. So that is uh, what they're they're having a chore all over this week, as you said. And they're, you know, trying to make the case that it's essentially a tacit federal approval of that standard. And again, you know, I, I don't think this is one of those genies that won't go back in the bottle, but, you know, there will be a lot of them. And so the, 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 the ball's moved up the playing field, uh, certainly on this issue. So keep track uh, legislatively and at the state and uh, municipal level of these executive orders, these ordinances shoring up supposed holes in the federal's paid leave, worker protections, and workplace and customer safety measures um, following CDC guidelines will be spilling out uh, certainly over over the next few days and weeks. So, so pay particular attention to that. That's the scorecard for this week. Well, another week, another pod. It's, uh, as we're taping this, it is Good Friday. Sunday is Easter. It seems like a very odd, very unique Good Friday and Easter and not the usual festivities for obvious reasons. Franklin, will, I know you have small children, will the Easter Bunny be visiting the Coley Casa this weekend? The, the Easter Bunny has already been all over this house for weeks preparing. Uh, my wife is very into the, uh, the various holidays. So we have big Easter baskets. It's kind of embarrassing, honestly, how much stuff is in there. But yeah, we've, there's been weeks of, of Amazon deliveries and Publix, you know, we had all the candy weeks ago. So it will be a big thing. There will be a big Easter egg hunt in the front yard. Unfortunately, we won't be able to go to the downtown Winter Park one this year. But, um, but yeah, there, it'll be two days of Easter, two days of Easter egg hunt. Multiple locations. Well, it's going to be yeah. a, a different looking Peter Cottontail. You know, it's going to be masks and gloves. It'll be Peter Cotton mask uh, this year. But uh, hopefully it doesn't diminish little kids and their fun on Easter. I do. I, I have been seeing that there's a, already a scarcity on eggs just due to people hoarding during the corona thing. But even now with Easter. So hopefully you got your eggs and they're all died and ready to go. And hope the Coley House has a safe and happy and healthy Easter as all of our listeners uh, stay inside, stay safe, and uh, happy Easter.